Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we've got Wes Reynolds. He is the founder and CEO, Green Mill Supercritical. Wes, thanks for being with us at The Talking Hedge. Hey, great to be with you, Josh. Thanks for uh, making the time today. Yeah. So um, I want to know a little bit more about Green Mill Supercritical before we get there. Uh, tell the audience a little bit about how you got into the cannabis industry and uh, kind of what sparked uh, your, your company. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks. And first of all, let me just say, uh, I am the president and CEO of Green Mill, but I'm not actually a founder. I've been with the company for two and a half years, but it was founded uh, about two years before that by a couple of guys, one of whom is still very involved and the other one is not, but uh, just, you know, for accurate representation, et cetera. Um, you know, I'm a almost 20 year Coca-Cola guy. i was there uh, mostly on the international side of the business. My family and I, we lived overseas and uh, had a great career with Coke and loved that. And I would say around 2017, decided um, that I was itching to do something else uh, and started kind of engineering an exit from Coke. And in that process went through a rather lengthy and intensive discernment process of kind of what I wanted to do next and kept coming back to cannabis. Um, it was kind of right at that time when cannabis was starting to heat up a little bit and uh, there was a good bit of excitement about it. Um, and it's a place where I feel uh, there's a real need for a change of, uh, you know, the, the attitudes are changing when it comes to cannabis in particular. Um, and I wanted to be part of that change because I think um, the plant that has a lot to offer uh, to humanity in total and particularly to uh, you know our society in the US and I think was wrongly maligned for a long time um, and so it's uh, it's kind of it was important to me to be part of kind of changing that so uh, after I left coke I went to Florida for a year and ran the uh, operation for Certera down in Florida out of Tampa which is now parallel which is one of the larger multi-state operators uh, I was the president of the Florida business and had that whole business seed to shelf. So we had a uh, greenhouse, we had dispensaries, we had branded products, we had uh, delivery, uh, the whole nine yards. It's a, I think, you know, Florida is a super licensed state. So every license basically has to control the product from start to finish uh, in the market. Um, enjoyed that a lot, really had learned a lot about the space. And then um, kind of when I left Certera, was looking as uh, an investor primarily in the space. And, um, and I like the, I don't like the cultivation side of the business as much from an investment perspective. We can get into that some if you want to. Um, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel like it was quite ready. It was quite time to be playing on the branded side, distribution side. So, you know, that center ancillary kind of piece of the business was quite fascinating to me. And what I knew from my experience at Sorterra was that everybody was unhappy with their extraction solutions. <laughs> So um, I came across uh, these guys at Green Mill out of Pittsburgh that I think are making the best piece of uh, supercritical CO2 extraction equipment on the market today and getting better, uh, you know, kind of by the month. Every, we have regular innovations. We kind of improve our systems uh, consistently. And uh, I'm excited about what the company's doing and I'm excited about what it means for consumers in the space who are you know, I think looking for better and better products and more differentiated products uh, in the cannabis space and a green mill supercritical system 
uh, allows that to happen in a way uh, that I think is, uh, is somewhat uncommon in the space. So that's kind of our story. Maybe I'll stop there and let you uh, dig a little. Yeah, I kind of wanted to touch on on the flower maybe a little bit. So you, part of your decision making, I think maybe, and don't let me speak for you, but it sounds like it, your experience being in Florida with the MSO kind of gave you an insight and you were like, yeah, I don't really want to touch the flower. I haven't, I haven't seen anything uh, on the ground in Florida, but I, having grown myself, I know that humidity is a huge factor. Powdery mildew, all of these things are, are, are uh, a factor to play in. And when you get to a high humidity area like Florida, it's going to be very, very expensive to counteract that. You have a dense flower. I would think mold, mildew, all of those things are an issue. It, is that the case? Is it expensive to cultivate? Was that part of your decision making and not wanting to touch the flower? Uh, it wasn't so much that, yes, I mean, it, you know, perhaps it's a bit more expensive. I, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's prohibitively more expensive. I think you can grow, you know, I think you can successfully grow, particularly with indoor control grow. I think, you know, uh, environmental factors are, they're a concern, but, you know, we've learned how to mitigate those, you know, to a large degree. So I, I don't think that's, a huge issue. I think, you know, if you're the real purist and, and I, I don't pretend to be a, you know, a cannabis connoisseur uh, on that level. I think if, but the kind con the connoisseurs that I know, there is no substitute for really great flower. It's just that that's, that's where you want to be. That's what you want to, that's what you want to have. That's what you want to be consuming. I think that's uh, in an ideal world, that's true. Uh, but I also think that most consumers today in the market want a uh, a more discrete product, you know, for lots of different reasons, uh, and they and they want a more convenient product than necessarily you're going to get out of you know flour all the time. Um, although there's some cool innovations with you know things like these uh, you know vaporizers with the you know sticks that you put directly into the vaporizer, which I think is pretty cool, and you know you're off and running. Um, and so it's more because I think that in in the marketplace, I think distinguishing with distinguishing your product, differentiating your product when it comes to flour is a more challenging uh, proposition, I think, than a, a finished product that can be, you know, more readily branded and more readily differentiated in the marketplace. So um, I, I just think most of the, most of the cultivation side of the business, and I'm going to get in trouble saying this because people are going to be like, you're crazy. Uh, but I think most of the cultivation side of the business is heading more toward commoditization than differentiation. Uh, and I, I think that there's an opportunity to, to really differentiate products through delivery methods, through, you know, content, you know, starting with great flour, of course. Um, but I think that's where we'd rather play in that space that's not licensed. So we make a system that we sell to licensed operators, but we're not licensed operators ourselves. So we sort of uh, sidestep that whole piece of the business. Yeah. No, I don't think that sounds crazy at all. I totally agree with you uh, from the sense that it's a race to the bottom. In fact, we just had wholesale and retail pricing from Apex and BDS Analytics on the show last week. And as of between May and April, prices are definitely decreasing in flour. Uh, market share of flour in California is only 42%. And we're seeing wholesale and retail prices decreasing and maybe even same store sales peaking until we get to the point where there's new additional innovative products. Uh, and I think part of that is going to be beverages. You, you've got a, a career at Coca-Cola. 
Um, and yet we haven't quite seen even, I'm from Seattle, and we haven't seen infused coffee on a wide scale basis. Portland has some grab and go. I'm not talking about the K cups. That's not coffee people. Uh, I'm talking about RTDs, ready to go drinks. Um, did you see Constellation Brands drop a billion dollars into canopy growth? Was that part of your like aha moment? Like this is a legitimate industry. I'm going to jump into that. Did you see that at all? I think. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, actually, I think it was 4.2 billion. I, w I bet they wish it was a billion right now. But um, the yes, uh, that was clearly part of it. I think there was nothing but upside. I think it was. It's an interesting dynamic because I'm, I'm going to run around your question a minute. I'll get sort of to it, but um, you know, I think in the early phases of this space or sector, whatever you want to call it, when it comes to cannabis, which I think is broad, and we can narrow it, narrow it, narrow it a little bit, but. I think it's been all things to all people. And you know what really was happening early and still happening to some degree, in my opinion, is that everybody was counting the full opportunity as an addressable opportunity for each operator. So everybody was kind of starting with a supply side equation, right? And they were going, okay, I've got X number of acres. I can plant this much uh, biomass. I can harvest, I can extract. I have this much oil. I can sell it for X or I can sell the flour for Y. And therefore, my business is worth this giant number. Um, and two things I think were happening. One was the, the projected demand wasn't as much as everybody said it was going to be for lots of different reasons that we could get into. Uh, and then probably more importantly, even was that everybody counted the, the whole market as their market. You know? And so you have, let's say, 10 operators in, in a space and all 10 of those operators are kind of counting everybody in the market as theirs where really what they could expect is maybe 10% of the market, not 100% of the market. Therefore, everybody overestimated. And when you start with supply, then all you're doing is just increasing costs and you're, you're overcapitalizing what's already a, um, you know, a complicated and difficult market to succeed in anyway. So you know, one of the things that we did at Green Mill very deliberately, but I think in the early days was, I, it was uh, risky, or let's say it was a little scary, was we said, we're not going to make anything over a 10 liter. We're not going to make any system with more than a 10 liter vessel. So we have small, by industry standards, our systems are small. But our larger system, and but the great part is that they're, they're small, but they're very uh, convenient. They're very scalable. They're, they're, they move with you. You don't have to over, you don't overscale with our system or you don't overcapitalize with our system. And our largest system, even though it's small, can still do about $10 million a year in revenue of concentrated oil at current prices. So there just aren't a lot of product lines out there doing $10 million a year. There are a lot of companies doing that kind of number, but they're doing it on multiple product lines. So what we like about our solution is it allows a very low capital investment in a market that's still evolving and that we're still very, very much trying to understand the consumer. I would say that, you know, there are people doing great jobs of working to understand the consumer, but we still understand it at such a macro level. We really don't have any, any good data, I don't think, around really detailed customer segmentation or consumer segmentation in this market and how people are really behaving, what they're really doing and what they really want. And I think as that evolves, I think it's going to be important for operators to be quick and be flexible in terms of their ability to change product lines, meet those products, whether that's beverages, like you said, which I think we'll certainly see more of, um, 
although I think the use case for beverages is somewhat is a little harder sometimes just because of the onset factor. I think it's very, it's a little bit challenging. Um, but I think that code will get cracked. I don't think we've cracked it yet. Uh, They're working and, on it with some nanotech, but it's exactly. Yeah, it's got some ways to go. Yeah. And so, you know, and I think what we believe is true is that like a, a system like Greenmill allows you to kind of pinpoint one opportunity or or one consumer, you know, sort of solution and then deliver against that consumer solution. And maybe you have two or three green mill systems and maybe you have two or three BTO solutions and maybe you have some, you know, other extraction solutions that are coming down the line. Maybe you have some solubility stuff that you'd use for beverages and other products. So I think that the, what's great about it is I think retail, I think operators need to be thinking more diverse, not less diverse. Um, just imagine Josh, uh, if Starbucks, you know, if Starbucks open stores, and instead of them brewing the coffee in the store, you mentioned coffee, they just you know, like created some central brewing house and then sent all the coffee out to the stores. Would you go buy it? I mean, probably not. Mm. But when you go into the store and they're brewing a fresh cup of coffee for you, okay, that, that's, that works, that's appealing. Mm -hmm. And I, I think this idea that we can standardize this industry and create these you know, products that everybody wants, I don't think is right. I think it's gonna be more and more craft products, not less. And the more craft products we have, there are gonna be a few you know, huge players that have huge share in the market and that's great. They'll be like Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we want to service and what we're building systems for is that craft artisan operator who's trying to make a really differentiated special product that they're going to market to consumers. Yeah, I mean, somebody has to buy Tilray's, you know, garbage up there. It's going to be people who don't really <laughs> understand the market that people buy Budweiser all the time. But it's going to be those, um, you know, the micro brew equivalents that actually produce things that people want that aren't capped at. Know, terpene caps that they're talking about out there and, and crazy stuff. But to your point, you, you had mentioned early on that uh, in the in the interview that you didn't want to get involved with brands yet too early for brands. Was that because people still were considering uh, their products based on the highest THC at the lowest price point? Um, and that's why you you went with Green Mill Supercritical rather than focusing on a brand? Um. Yeah, I think it's also because just the stage of development, I think that it was a, um, don't get me wrong, I think, you know, we're, Green Mill is a, is a brand for us that we treat as a brand, in, and we talk about pushing CO2 beyond our limits, we're very committed to CO2, we love. When I say brand, uh, I mean like actual products, like. like yeah, products. that's what I understood your question to be, okay. so that's what I was just differentiating there, but um, it's more because I think it's just going to be a a bloody space for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just think brand building is a very, very difficult thing. Um, and it doesn't mean that there won't be some massive winners in that space, but I think there will be, you know, a hundred losers for every winner um, when it comes to branded products in this space. If you look at any, I mean, you look at soft drinks, I mean, there's a big, uh, you talk about uh, infused beverages and every year, one of the big shows in the soft drink space is the NAC show, which is the National Association of Convenience Stores. Mm. And um, it's a huge show that moves is around that in the Puerto country. Rico recently? It, goes, it moves from usually Chicago, um, Orlando, Vegas. Uh, I can't, I think that's it. Maybe there's one okay. more space, but they kind of rotate it around. And I haven't been in five or six years, you know, since I left that role. But um, 
when energy drinks got really big, for example, it's kind of a, an interesting corollary or maybe an analog, whatever you want to call it. Um, it was, there was a period where every, I mean, it, just about every other booth was a different energy drink. You know, everybody was coming out with an energy drink. If you went to 7-Eleven, you looked in the vault, it was just, you know, 60% of the vault was energy drinks. And then traditional soft drinks kept getting pushed off to the side a little bit. So you had, you know, water for a while and then, um, you know, so that, that trend kind of happens, but the number of energy drinks that end up sticking around out of that equation is literally, you know, you can count on one hand. I mean, it just doesn't, it's not a, there's not enough space for hundreds of brands. There's space for five or six brands at a kind of scale that you're going to be able to put the money behind them to market them or what you're going to do then, in my opinion, that's why I said I would go with the craft, more craft route. So, you know, if I were an operator, you know, what I find appealing as an operator would be, you know, a, a smaller operation in a geographically limited space with, you know, a really dedicated and uh, committed set of consumers who want my product because it's a better product. And that's what the brand means. It's not, you know, the equivalent, like you said, Bud, Budweiser is a fine beer. There's nothing wrong with Budweiser. It's just, if you love beer, it's not going to be your first choice. Uh, it's going to be, you know, there, there's going to be something else you're going to look for. Um, but Budweiser wins through consistency and scale and, you know, all of the, the distribution muscle that AB has, et cetera. Um, and I found, I just thought that that was a place that was going to be more difficult to, to make any kind of progress in than that ancillary space where we could really focus on delivering a solution. And that's what we've done. I mean, I think our mousetrap is the best mousetrap. Now, how well we can communicate that, I think, is, gonna, is our challenge um, because it gets very technical and very scientific and, you know, that gets a little wonky and people get tired of that. So, you know, we've done a lot to try to kind of simplify that um, and make this more about, you know, if you want a craft solution that will grow with you and move with you, there is no more cost effective way than Green Mill to get that done. You know, we're not the cheapest system out there, but we are way more cost effective because of our limited to no downtime, because of the efficiency of our system, because of just the, the automation capability, the repeatability, all those things. So, you know, even the craft brewer wants to know that when they start that process, what they thought they were going to get is what they get. That's how you make good craft beer. Good craft beer is not like, oh, let's see what we get today. <laughs> you know, it's being able to kind of repeat the same process. Yeah, there so, was sorry, a, I feel like I said a lot, but maybe I'll stop no, for a minute. No, that's fine. There, there was a recent um, uh, convenience store, like a national convenience store um, conference in Puerto Rico, and the whole thing was filled with D8, uh, Delta 8. Yeah. So it's, yeah, that makes sense. It's the, yeah. the, the trends just kind of keep, keep flowing or whatever. Um, but I, I think, you know, maybe VapeGate kind of will, will put that on, on blast a little bit. People aren't really going out and buying vaporizers, you know, or a lot, at least at convenience stores. Um, I think there's also, uh, you know, when I saw, when I was up at Lyft in, in uh, Vancouver, BC in January, 2020, they were talking about uh, solventless products in, in the concentrate segment. Live rosin was up 400% because of the perceived, um, uh, there's some kind of like perceived healthiness, like it's better or more natural or whatever uh, with, with right. the, the, the word live rosin and, and resin is increasing in product popularity too. Even though it's more expensive, there's more value. 
So I think there's a lot of people flocking to manufacture those products because the, the margins are a lot higher with a retail price of about $60 a gram for these carts versus, you know, I don't know if you remember how much it is in Florida wholesale uh, and retail. It's probably maybe $20 a gram at most in uh, retail per gram of right. flour. So it's a fraction of the, of the, of the cost. <laughs> Um, are you seeing similar trends uh, in terms of the uh, the products you guys are manufacturing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, for sure. And you know, we've recently come out. One of the challenges with what I love about CO two is the the natural. I mean, it's the zero residual effect of CO two. It's a clean, uh, safe uh, solvent. Um, it really gives you, I think, a great product. The challenge with CO two up until recently was the winterization process required the introduction of ethanol which kind of defeated the whole proposition right i mean so now you're like oh well we just adulterated the product explain and, that a little bit wes what is the winterization process for those that don't know so you know in a normal extraction process you're going to pull out a crude oil that contains a lot of fats and lipids those fats and lipids need to be removed from that crude oil and the way that you get them out up until recently is uh, through winterization, which is essentially uh, you wash the product in an ethanol bath uh, and then freeze it, uh, lower it to a certain, you know, basically a freezing temperature. Uh, and then those lipids and fats separate from the oil that you want to keep. And then you kind of just uh, swipe the, the fats away and the lipids away. It's dirty, it's expensive, it's time consuming, very slow. Um, and it's been, it's just sort of a process that everybody has tolerated. Well, We've been working for some time to, and people have been talking about what is called inline winterization or real-time winterization. We've branded, we've trademarked real-time winterization. We've patented the process that uh, now works. Um, and so we've removed the need for the winterization process as a separate process from the extraction process. So with our system now with a real-time, and it's a combination of a, uh, a, a physical add on to the system. So there's a machine component to this that makes this happen and a method adjustment that allows it to happen at the same time. So those two things together mean that you lose almost no time in the, in the process and you end up with a winterized product at the end. Uh, and you also add very little uh, space requirement to your process as well. And we see this as being just game changing. And, you know, we were just at the uh, MJ BizCon in Vegas recently in our booth and you know everybody want, wanted to come over and talk about you know how do we do this how do we do this um, and so you know we see this as a real just industry game changer because of like you said it allows you to sort of create and imagine new products that nobody's been able to make to this point because of that winterization process just being one of them um, but we haven't yet really figured out all any of the limits of co2 so that's what i said we keep saying you know our whole mission is push co2 beyond its known limits so what else can we do what else can we do live rosin is a great example um you know i think there are multiple ways to get to that end product uh, you know i think if what people are trying to do with you know various uh ice products or you know different uh chatters or different any any kind of thing that you know i think you can start to imagine what effect are we trying to get? What, what characteristics are we trying to hold on to? Now, how do we use our mechanical and chemical engineering understanding to begin to put that 
those solutions on the table more and more consistently and cost effectively. Um, and that, that's our whole that, that's our whole mission here. Why is um, why is there not a mobile processing industry? Um, there's not people running around manufacturing joints for different producers or processors. There doesn't seem to be, you know, a, a van or a fleet of, of trucks going out um, utilizing, you know, green mill supercritical, for example, and going to a producer processor and, um, and doing mobile processing. And yet delivery is taking off something like yeah. uh, 60% or something in California is all delivery. So if delivery is taking off, why, what's, what's the uh, slowdown or, or limitations for mobile processing? Um, I think we're, I think we're going to see more and more of it. I mean, I think you see people uh, setting up for that. I, I think it really, the challenge goes back to, uh, in my opinion, the challenge goes back to what I was saying earlier, where, you know, most of our, most of the thinking has started with the supply chart, supply side mindset saying, how much biomass do you need to extract? Mm. Uh, or, you know, what mobile processing is required because, you know, somebody's got a, a, a supply problem that they're trying to fix. I think that what most people are starting to see is that <clears throat> that mobile processing is going to be, let's say, relatively expensive. And then if the demand is not there, then they don't need the mobile processing anymore, right? So it, it's sort of, I think that whole economic equation is sorting itself out. And until it gets more clear, I think it's difficult for a mobile processor to sort of to hit the sweet spot in terms of the capacity, capability, uh, efficiency of that whole mobile processing solution and the economics of it to the operator. But I think that's coming, Josh. I mean, I, I mean, there's no question, I think, that we're going to see some of that. The other you know, complicating factor in that equation, I think, is licensing. And the you know kind of various restrictions and different uh, you know nuances of the licensing model in in the different states in the U.S. in particular, uh, and you, know, you can talk about international as well. Hmm. Why do you think? I mean, I know this is not your interview, but I'm <laughs> I'm just curious to see why you think it's not taking off because I'd love your opinion. Uh, I mean, in Canada, I don't think it's taken off because people have proprietary methods and they don't want that to be shared. I think in the U.S., not being able to go across state lines is difficult. You'd have to clean the, the machine out um, so there's zero THC in there. Uh, right. But I think maybe it's just there's somebody there's just people who haven't. Um, maybe haven't thought about it, haven't done it, haven't tried to execute it. I haven't even seen anybody try to execute it. There's been people who've talked about it, you know, mobile processing, but I haven't really seen implementation even attempted um, yeah. because of the, the cost of trying to make that work and the lack of licensing that you mentioned, the regulations. Um, not too long ago, people were, were, were seeing motels in Florida and across the country blowing up from BHO and, and other um you know, forms of creating concentrate. So um, I think that there's this, uh, this regulatory pressure to kind of hold that back. That's my, that's my. Yeah, I, I think that's right too. And I, but I think we will start, I think we will continue to see people working to develop, whether it's mobile solutions or co-ops or, you know, you know people are going to have to 
there's going to have to be some sharing of method. There's going to be have to, there's going to have to be sharing of resources and technology so that mm-hmm. you know people do get efficiencies. But I, I think one of the things I love about the solution that we provide is that we can you know the payback on one of our systems for a you know healthy business is is days, not years. So you know that also becomes it's like it's kind of like if you go back to Starbucks again, you know, every Starbucks puts at least one, most of them have several, you know, $5,000 espresso machines on the counter um, that, you know, that's done because the, the economics of that makes sense. And, and that's the quality of the product that you want. If, you know, if you're trying to, if you said, okay, we'll show up with the espresso machine every day at, you know, 1030 and stay until noon and anybody wants espresso can come then it's, it's kind of messes up the whole model, you know, even if you uh, save a few bucks. So I think that's, that's the challenge right now is trying to figure out how is that really going to work? What does that look like um, from an execution perspective? I think we can dream it up, but I, I just think it's harder to do than, than we figured out yet. What's the future of concentrates look like? We've seen some innovation. Uh, dab tabs came out a few years ago and just never took off. Um, they were trying to sell these ceramic concentrate tabs to soccer moms to make it really easy to like drop these these mint looking you know like a dinner mint looking tab into a device or whatever but it's a ritual and i don't think people are buying the necessary tools that's why washington state um pre-rolls are it's weird the demographic number one demographic for pre-rolls is white women 50 and over I'm assuming yeah. because I haven't interviewed very many white women 50 and over and asked them their why they're buying pre-rolls my assumption um is that they don't want the ritual. They don't want to look like a crackhead to buy a pipe. They're definitely not going out and buying a volcano or anything else. They want to buy it, ditch it, and they're done. So that's the opposite of innovation. That's about price and convenience that you mentioned earlier is some of the top two decision makers. Uh, But we haven't seen a lot of innovation because of uh, the um, lack of legality, you know, that's why beverages haven't taken off because as you know, it takes regional facilities to make beverages a national product. It's one of the lowest margins and one of the most expensive products. And it's really, really expensive to, uh, to do at scale. Where is the innovations in the industry right. headed? Um, what do you, where do you see things going as dabs tabs didn't quite work out? What do you think will, what are you seeing? Uh, I mean, I think it's going to be, I, I think where we're headed is more to the um, consumer control. The, indi- the individual gets to control what they want, when they want it, and how they get it. So I think that, you know, I'm, I'm amazed at some of the, I do think there's some interesting vape innovations that have been coming out recently. You know, I told you about the one, um, I think the company is called Akura, which, uh, you know, I was introduced to recently, which I just found really quite nice. It's a, you know, small like kind of egg-shaped vaporizer with a tiny hole in the top, um, very you know sort of intuitive controls on the vaporizer, and then you and it's a stick, it's a paper, uh, it's a pre-roll essentially. I mean it's a it's a small pre-roll that you can get already packed with you know from various uh, suppliers, or you can put your own uh, you know botanical product in there, uh, and then you just take that little stick, push it down into the uh, hole on the vaporizer, and then you're you're vaporizing, you're vaping, uh, you know, flower product, at, at, which I think gives you a lot of the advantages of the whole of pre-rolls. It also gives you the advantage of not burning the product, which is better, I think better for you than burning the product. People argue about that. Um, and also the, the 
discreteness of what you get from a, uh, you know, a vape product instead of burning it. So I, I think those kind of innovations are going to continue to be quite interesting. The problem with them, I think, is multi, multiple, with, but one of the problems with that particular solution is it's very expensive. So, you know, it knocks a lot of people out of the market. Uh, and I think that's another reason pre-rolls are very attractive, is like you said, because they're cheap. Uh, but I think what we're going to see with, particularly with concentrate products, is more and more where the, the quality of the oil, the quality of the concentrate itself is what people get really interested in. And then the administration of that becomes sort of almost uh, agnostic in a way and, and convenient in a way so that I can, I know what my oil is and where it comes from, or if it's not oil, whatever that concentrate product is, and I know precisely what's in it. I think that's been very difficult for people to have confidence in because they just don't know. It's like, oh, we'll take this dropper and fill it up to about here. And then, you know, and it kind of feels like, well, I, I don't know how much I just got. And I think that's really confusing for people mm -hmm. versus a vaped or a smoked product that titrates very easily. And then, because onset is so individual, it's so different for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think being able to really dose in a very accurate way is an important part of the concentrate business that we haven't cracked yet. Yeah, you might be interested in the Voyager uh, based in Toronto. It's an accurate dosing for beverages. So it's kind of a grabbing, yeah. really compact and small. So I definitely see products and uh, devices like that taking off in popularity. Interesting. Uh, yeah. There's probably a lot. He was actually at MJ um, Unpacked. Um, he was not at MJ BizCon, but the Marijuana Business Conference was in Vegas recently. Weed Week, as it's now called, I guess, because there's many, many events. I attended four events over five days um, and and was busy. I got a lot out of it. Why did you go to MJ BizCon? What were you anticipating? Um, and what was the takeaway? What did you get out of it? Um, I, I thought it was, uh, it's good. We've been, you know, we started going to MJ BizCon in 2017, I guess, and, uh, you know, missed it last year because of COVID. There wasn't one. And, uh, and it was a big miss for us. It's a place where, you know, we get a lot of access to um, interested, um, you know, buyers of our systems and operators uh, that's otherwise kind of hard for us as a small company to go get. Uh, so we see that as valuable. I think the thing that I, was pleasantly surprised with, let's say this time, was people are in a very different place in their understanding of what's happening and kind of what they're trying to do. I think in the past, we got a lot of people just trying to get educated. You know, they, they just wanted to know kind of how does this work and what are my options? And, you know, now I think people have a much kind of broader foundational understanding of different pieces of the industry. And they're getting a lot more targeted in terms of what it is they're trying to, to understand or to uh, sort of accomplish. So we didn't, I didn't feel like we saw as many people as we have at some shows in the past, but I felt like everybody that we talked to and met at MJ BizCon was, uh, you know, a very uh, interested and uh, informed uh, sort of potential partner uh in this space in a way that they haven't been in the past mm -hmm. um, and i i think people are also uh much quicker to discern the um 
what what's what they can trust and what they can't trust. I'll put it that way. Um, and so, and I think we that was just it was nice for people to confirm what we're what we're presenting to them for to see them be excited about it, to see them, you know, kind of um, really appreciate the what we've done um, versus what other some of our competitors sort of like to say they do but don't do. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at, um, you know, East Coast versus West Coast, or, or let me put it this way, the merging markets versus the existing marketplace, um, where are you selling more to? And do you know what what type of concentrate that they're making? Is it is it shatter or is it um, CO2? Is it, um, is it wax? Is it BHO? Do you know what concentrate or what solvent, what type of concentrate they're using and where? they're buying from um only anecdotally i would say josh i mean not not like we would we would like to know uh to that extent um i think we're selling kind of uh primarily to we we have more traditional cbd operators who are farming hemp using our system to extract cbd we have you know high-end cannabis operators who are using our stuff to uh produce you know very um like uh Candescent, for example, use a green mill system for all of its uh, stylus vape line, you know, which won some awards. There's a Haven in Michigan just won some awards for their oil uh, using green mill systems. We have uh, uh, several people that use it for non-cannabis applications like uh, hops, lavender, uh, making concentrated oils. You know, typically the, I think there's a, the, the end use, the the consumer, whatever that sort of product that you're trying to satisfy the consumer with, I think changes the dynamics of what kind of solution you want to have. So I think supercritical CO2 is a very important solution to have in your arsenal. I, I think BHO has a place, you know, I, I think just, you know, straight up high volume hydrocarbon solutions are, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it creates a product uh, that might have a place in the marketplace. Um, you know, I'm a guitar player. I like to play guitar. I have more than one guitar. You know, I, you know, there are applications for the guitar that are better on certain, you know, I want my steel string dreadnought guitar for certain applications. I want my, you know, electric guitar for other applications. And I, you know, I want a classical guitar when I'm playing certain other kinds of music. And it would be nonsensical to think, oh, I just need one guitar. Nobody would say that, mm. <laughs> you know, and yet we sort of talk like there's some best extract extraction idea or some best concentrate idea. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that way. I feel like um, it's not just feel. I don't think consumers want that. I think what consumers want is they want different kinds of products. Coca-Cola doesn't make the same. We don't make Coca-Cola didn't make carbonated soft drinks like Coke in the same way or in the same place or on the same equipment that they make, you know, um, simply orange juice, for example. It's a, it's a totally different proposition. And I think that's what we're going to see. They're both beverages. But I think that's what we're going to start to see in this cannabis space. It's just very different propositions. And there will be room for a lot, a lot of, not a lot, but there will be room for multiple uh, sort of providers and, and suppliers into that space to enable those solutions. Um, and I, I think we're going to see more application of CO2, not less as we go forward, even though people are moving away from, in some ways, certain CO2 applications, 
they're also going, oh, I didn't realize I could do this and I could do this and I could do this. And I think that's what we're excited about. Yeah, I always advise my clients to have some type of solvent list just in case you have a freak moment where regulators um, freak out and ban it like you did in Oregon and anywhere else, you kind of have to hedge your bets. But nonetheless, if people are going to have uh, uh, an extraction machine, um, you know, there's a reason to kind of look at some of the, the competitors out there. Green Mill Supercritical is one. But when someone is looking at you guys, what is the differentiator? In other words, when someone's looking at Green Mill Supercritical, why would they buy your machine and not a competitor? Well, I think there are m- multiple reasons. I think that, you know, for me, CO2 extraction is all about how well you can control temperature, flow rate, and pressure. The better you can control those variables, the more consistent, precise, and cost-effective your output's going to be. And, you know, at Green Mill, our tolerances there are second to none, and we've got data to prove it. We've published that data. It's on our website. You know, you can see our system. You run an extraction, say you do a three-hour run at 3,500 PSI. Our system is going to fluctuate five, you know, probably five PSI either side of 3,500. Our competitive system might fluctuate 300 PSI either side of 3,500. Is that the end of the world? No, probably not. But what it means is you're getting a little bit less of a precise product than you thought you were. They make fun of me all the time, Josh, because I use these analogies, but I talk about cheesecake sometimes. And I say, no, if I want to make a perfect cheesecake, I can, I got to have the right ingredients. I got to have the right methodology. I got to know what I'm doing. I got to have the right tools. I got to have the right recipe. But part of my tools are an oven, let's say, for example. And if the oven doesn't hold the temperature and doesn't distribute the temperature evenly and perfectly across that oven, the cheesecake is going to be less than perfect. It might still be really good. It might be great even, but it's just not, I can't get to perfect without an oven that's going to do the job, right? And so what we like to say is that this, the green mill system is going to do what you expect it to do because the tolerances are so good. And that's because of the way we've engineered it. It's because of the way it's designed and built. It's a proprietary pump. There's a proprietary uh, software solution on the system that helps control the system. So you're going to get what you thought you were going to get. So that's the first big reason. I think also because we are the footprint, you know, for the same throughput, we're about one third the size of our nearest competitor in terms of footprint. So you've got a very flexible system that can go in lots of places in your lab setup that you might not you know be able to to do with a a more permanent bigger system Um, and in the end it's going to be the most cost effective solution because it's not it doesn't go down it just doesn't break Uh, and you know when i was at uh certera you know we started with one system and just in the interest of being a good competitor i'm not going to name them but i could tell you who they are (laughs) we started with one system and you know, it was down almost as much as it was up. Uh, and it was sort of a regular thing, you know, oh, was, is our extraction system working today? Nope. You know, and then how do we get it fixed and cost money, time, everything else that goes along with that. We went to another system and it was kind of equally down. So, you know, I think that when you, what you, if you are getting what you want out of your extraction system, that is a valuable uh, piece of the equation. It's, it's not a frustration point. Extraction is not going to be the bottleneck uh, with a, with a green mill system. It's just going to enable what you're trying to do. So I think that's the primary differentiator. And I think that you can get it, 
you know, if you have scale needs that are beyond uh, what our largest system does, then you start to multiply our systems. That gives you redundancy and also gives you some additional flexibility, which I think is a positive. All right, Wes, we covered a lot. Um, if people want to learn some more, get a hold of you, where are you at? Do you got a website on social media? Yeah, yeah, we're all over the place. We're on Instagram and we've got greenmillsupercritical.com, uh, which is just G-R-E-E-N-M-I-L-L, just like it sounds, Green Mill, and then supercritical.com. Uh, you can find me at Wes, W-E-S, at greenmillsupercritical.com. Uh, and we also have... Um, I'm trying to think if it's, uh, uh, we got a LinkedIn page and uh, Jesse Turner is our head of innovation who is uh, posting a lot on LinkedIn about kind of what he's up to and what he's discovering. Some of the things that are possible with CO2. Um, I would encourage you to look him up, Jesse Turner on LinkedIn. Uh, he's actually in Denver and just doing some really interesting stuff. So uh, we're not hard to find and we love to talk to people um, about you know, kind of what's going on in this space. Great. And I'll put uh, Wes's LinkedIn contact in the show notes. You can get a hold of him that way. But with that, I think we're gonna have to roll this one up. So I want to thank my guest, Wes Reynolds. He is the president and CEO of Green Mill Supercritical. Wes, thanks for being on the Talking Hitch. Josh, thanks a bunch for everything you do for the industry, man. Take care. Yeah. I'm Josh. Right. This is the Talking Hitch. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.